Well, good morning. It's great to see you. Glad you're with us this morning. And we are, as Timothy just prayed, in the final, uh, this is the final sermon in our series in the book of Ephesians, where we've been looking at who are we, our identity, uh, and what God has called us to, and how to live out that identity. Next week, I'm excited. And then we'll begin a new series, a six-week series titled Love Thy Neighbor. Uh, We'll take a break uh, for Easter, but it'll be six weeks on what it means to love your neighbor. And, And my hope and our hope is that God will use this series to continue to push us outward as a church on the mission that God has called us to into the world, but in particular Durham, the city that God has called us to love. Uh, we've made a few, a few decisions during this series. We're gonna, uh, for all of our city groups, we're gonna table the study that we've been doing and we're gonna do sermon discussion questions based off of these uh, six uh, sermons on loving your neighbor. Uh, another thing we're planning on doing is uh, every, uh, every Sunday morning, we're gonna have a personal story that ties in uh, to the sermon for that morning. So for the next six weeks, we'll have kind of testimonies that pertain to the sermons. But this morning we're wrapping up Ephesians and I hope if you've been here, uh, you've enjoyed and been challenged by as I have our time in the word and I pray that God will continue to bear fruit in all of our lives as a result of Ephesians. Now, how many of you have seen the movie Selma? How many of you have seen the movie Selma? Uh, If you haven't, put it on your to-do list. You need to go watch it. Uh, Obviously, Selma, it's about Martin Luther King Jr. and the events of the civil rights movement that took place in Selma, Alabama, amidst incredible police brutality. Thousands, uh, if you know your history, marched from Selma to Montgomery, Alabama in protest of Jim Crow, and in particular for the voting rights of African Americans. Uh, And the theme song of the movie Selma is Glory by John Legend in Common, a powerful song. Uh, and I just wanted to share a piece of that song with you. Uh, and so uh, here, here it is. This is Common singing. Saw the face of Jim Crow under a bald eagle. The biggest weapon is to stay peaceful. We sing. Our music is the cuts that we bleed through. Somewhere in the dream, we had an epiphany. Now we right the wrongs in history. No one can win the war individually. It takes the wisdom of the elders and young people's energy. Welcome to the story that we call victory. February is Black History Month, if you didn't know that. It's the honoring of African-American men and women, the lifting up of a culture that for 400 years has experienced incredible oppression and suffering. This is a month that we should remember the atrocities of slavery and of lynching, of Jim Crow. Now maybe some of you say that that was a long time ago. No, it really wasn't. Redlining and blue lining of certain communities was not that long ago. Certain neighborhoods covenanting and preventing African Americans from buying and living there was not that long ago. It was not that long ago that four girls were killed in a church bomb in Birmingham, Alabama, and that Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated in Memphis, Tennessee. And it was just the other day that everyone saw Eric Garner killed on YouTube. Despite all the suffering and the oppression you can look out in the foyer of this incredible building that, that is called Hayti, and you can see the artwork, the artwork that is there depicting men and women who have stood firm and have prevailed, men and women who deserve much recognition for prevailing in a culture that oppressed. Now I have been, and I'm continuing to learn from my African-American brothers and sisters about their experience. 
have much to learn. And I have been told that because of this experience, this is why in many African-American churches there are songs that are sung that give words to suffering and to pain and to the victory that we have in Christ. That many find comfort in the scriptures. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. You know what my favorite Bible verse growing up was? Philippians 4.13, on the brim of my baseball hat, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I'd venture to say that was many of your favorite verses growing up. Maybe it was Jeremiah. I, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you. Do you feel the difference in those verses versus we're more than conquerors through him who loved us? So you don't have to tell an African-American that life's a battlefield because many of you here this morning have lived that battle. Amen. Many of you have drawn uh, draw from and reflect on the fact that you have been and continue to struggle against something. You're in a battle. But if we were to describe white, dominant culture, middle, upper class Christianity for the most part, again, this is a generalization, I would use the word insulated. When we experienced evil, our most common reaction as a as a white male growing up middle class, our, our most common reaction is to avoid or dodge or ignore or even medicate ourselves. And the reason I'm saying that is because this means for many of you who are like me, the passage that we're looking at this morning is a description of something that feels very foreign to you. So what Paul wants us to know is that if God's secret, this great secret and mystery of redemption is going to go to the whole world, if Christ is going to transform the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, you better believe we're gonna have a battle. Amen. We're gonna have a battle. And so we're gonna look at Ephesians chapter six, verses 10 to 20. I'm gonna ask you to stand as we read God's word, if you're able. This is God's word to us this morning. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and his shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that words may be given to me in, in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Let's pray. God, I ask that you would come now and that you would speak to us and open the eyes of our hearts, illumine our minds, and Lord, to the reality that we are in a battle. Wake us up to that, 
Give us insight into that, and Lord Jesus, help us to see you in the midst of it, the one leading us triumphantly. Lord, I pray that you would speak, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing to you, and that even in this time when there could be distractions and things that would take us away from the offensive weapon of the word of God, that you would give us focus by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. So a great movie from 1995, The Usual Suspects. The Usual Suspects quote, the greatest trick that the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he didn't exist. The greatest trick that the devil devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he didn't exist. You were one of the few cultures in the whole world where the predominant thinking is that the devil does not exist. I spent much time in Asia and some time in Africa and some time in Latin America and there is really no need to convince anyone in those cultures that evil and the devil are real. But our Western culture thinks that the majority of the world is wrong and that we're right. And our culture's denial of evil and the devil, it's pretty thin if you consider it for for a moment, just for a minute. How can someone enter into a school and open gunfire on little children? How can someone profit from sex trafficking and the selling of helpless girls? How can someone be a serial killer? How can someone like ISIS video the beheading of a person? How can addiction ravage and destroy not just individuals but families and communities? How can recreational spending increase in America while families in poverty multiply and missionaries struggle for funding? How can people not engage in racial discourse and ignore the fact that one in five black men are in prison? How can Americans spend more money on gambling than food? How can secret and compulsive sins be more common in the church today? Now I'm not saying that there is nothing about our nature that causes some of these things. Nature is involved, but I am saying it's much more. This is evil, and our passage says this is beyond flesh and blood. Now the modern West prefers to deny the concepts of evil because affirming evil implies that there are moral absolutes. And if there are moral absolutes, then there must be things like ultimate good, and ultimate truth. So we prefer to live comfortably, safe world where we don't have to engage in a battle. Brothers and sisters, we're way too cavalier because there's evil and there is a war and there's a battle that Christians all face. While Paul writes in verse 10, finally, He's concluding to the church in Ephesus, finally, be strong, stand against the devil. So I want us to consider four things about this battle this morning. Who do we fight? Where do we fight? How do we fight? And why we will win. Let's look first. Who do we fight? You know, one of the greatest needs when entering into a battle is reconnaissance work, right? Recon. 
Any good general will seek to understand who their opposition is, how they fight, what their tactics and their schemes are. Right? Any good boxer who's gonna, gonna go into the boxing ring is gonna study the tape of their opponent and learn how they fight and, and what their plan normally is. And so we must do some recon, church. We have to know our opposition, his tactics, and his schemes. Look at verse 12. It says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil. We wrestle. This is hand-to-hand combat. And 1 Peter tells us that Satan's goal is to kill, steal, and destroy. The goal of the enemy is to kill us. The devil hates God. The devil hates what God is doing. Therefore, the devil hates marriage, the devil hates family, the devil hates the church, the devil hates you, Christian. Another name given to the devil is the destroyer. He seeks to destroy. He hates all that God loves. And Satan, our enemy, is well-organized, wide-ranging and precise in his attacks. And the reformer Martin Luther from the 16th century was translating the Bible from the original language into his common language of German so that at that time the people could have God's word in their hands. And there is still to this day a splattering of ink on the wall where Luther, when translating the Bible, feeling spiritual attack from the devil, threw his ink well against the wall, yelling, get away from me, Satan. See, Luther felt deep spiritual attack when he was doing something that would change the church forever and impact God's kingdom significantly. So let me tell you, if you want comfortable and you want safe, don't step out on God's mission. But if you step out on God's mission and you seek to be used by the Lord in your job or in your neighborhood, if you share your faith with your friends and neighbors, if you attempt kingdom work, you're gonna face attack. Because the enemy hates God's kingdom. Here's something about who we're fighting that's quite sobering. He's already done his recon. His reconnaissance work is done. Listen to what Kent Hughes writes. I love this. He says, I'm no genius at mathematics, but even with my limited capabilities, I could be terrific at math if I worked on it for 100 years, maybe. If I labored at it for a thousand years and read all the learned theories, I would be a Newton or an Einstein. Or what if I had 10,000 years? Given that time, any of us could become the world's greatest philosopher or psychologist or theologian or linguist. Satan has had multiple millennia to study and master the human disciplines. And when it comes to human subversion, he is the ultimate manipulator. So we better be on guard. We better be engaged in this battle. And here are two great tactics that the devil uses. First, as the usual suspect said, convincing us he doesn't exist. When we live our lives like we don't have an enemy and we're not in the battle, we're falling prey to his tactics. Second, as C.S. Lewis writes in Screwtape Letters, taking an unhealthy interest in everything demonic is just as dangerous as the first. You see, we don't overestimate the devil either. The devil's but a creature. We must never forget, as one pastor said, that the devil is but the Lord's lackey. 
just as lackey. He can do nothing that the sovereign Lord does not allow. To Christ and his death on the cross was not because the devil was victorious. The devil did not kill Jesus. The Father sent the Son to come and die. This was his plan, and so God is so powerful and so sovereign that he can use the schemes and tactics of the devil to accomplish his plans. That's who we fight. Let's look secondly at where we fight. Where do we fight? Paul says that this battle takes place in the heavenly places. If you've been here, maybe that rings a bell. Remember, Paul starts this letter in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, declaring that we have been seated in the heavenly places. If you can remember, if you were here for that sermon, that's Paul saying this is your status. This is your identity that we've been given by faith in Christ. And so do you see what he's saying here now? That the battle that we will be attacked on and the the front that we'll be attacked upon is the place where our identity rests. It's where our identity rests. That's where the battle is waged. Now this really cuts into certain churches and beliefs that, that Satan is around every corner. That Satan needs to be rebuked and, and, uh, from every, every place and from every person. Now Satan works in many ways, I'm not denying that. But what I think Paul is saying here is that the primary battleground Our primary place in which Satan attacks us is in the heavenly places or in the place of our new identity. Sinclair Sinclair Ferguson makes the point that this passage comes at the end of three big sections where Paul has been talking about living out the gospel in the ordinary and the mundane. And that is precisely what I think Paul is saying. We can expect to be attacked in the ordinary day in, day out, struggle that we all have to remember who we are in Christ. We face that in our marriages. We face that in our families and in our jobs. See, Adam and Eve tripped not in the extraordinary, but in the mundane. Satan used marriage to lead them into sin. See, our battle's not in the ethereal or the mystical, but in the regular, ordinary routines of our daily life. Wherever God brings his grace to advance his purposes in and through our lives, there will be attack. It's in the day-in, day-out struggle that we all face with shame and with guilt that the enemy wants us to forget our position in Christ, to forget who we are in him and what's been declared true of us. See, the enemy's goal is to, for, is to cause us to forget all of chapters one through three of Ephesians, to forget our whole identity and what's true of us. Our enemy is crafty and cunning. Just for an example here, see, the enemy is not gonna come directly to you and tell you you must work really hard and alienate your spouse and alienate your family so that they leave you. Not gonna do that. He'll whisper in your ear, you need recognition. You need to work harder. You deserve it. Look at all you do. Give yourself more to your job. You see, he seeks to control us through good things that we seek, like a job, 
and many other things, things that we can look to for our identity outside of Christ. This is the battleground. This is where the enemy attacks us. So let's look third. How do we fight? How do we fight? Verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand. Be strong. Stand. All of us like strong, don't we? We like strong. Remember when everyone wore Lance Armstrong bracelets, live strong? We're obsessed with strong. We like it. So we, we exercise, we eat healthy, we, we want to be strong. And Paul describes the armor that allows us to be strong and to stand in verses 14 to 17. Six pieces of this armor that he describes, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes shod with the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit. And perhaps you're like me, you've been around churches where this has been taught. And it's been taught in such a way that it puts the weight upon you to go and get these pieces, to go get the armor and to put it on. Right? It's, it's your spiritual discipline to seek and to understand the truth. Right? Put on the belt of truth. Understand it. It's your discipline to pursue righteousness. It's your discipline to walk out the gospel of peace. It's your discipline to believe and to have faith. I have been a part and seen many accountability groups where the resolve is to be a good Christian through our discipline. And this works for a short amount of time. It does, it works for a short amount of time because we like strong. We like thinking we can and we, we think we will, but that is not what Paul is saying in this passage. This type of thinking that I, and, and teaching that I just described, it fails. It fails. You possibly could use it if you were using poor interpretation for the first four pieces of the armor, but you get to salvation and the spirit, there's no amount of discipline or human resolve that gets us salvation in the Holy Spirit. We all know salvation and the Spirit are gifts from God that we must receive them. That is true for all six pieces of the armor of God. Paul says, take these things up. That means they're already ours in Christ. Each one of these corresponds to some aspect of the Christian's new identity that he or she already has in Christ. So the literal translation in Greek, in the ESV, which, which we read out of, translates it this way, having the belt, having the breastplate, having, already possessing. So we have the belt of truth, integrity, that comes from us not having to pretend anymore. We can be honest and authentic Amen. because of Christ. We have the breastplate of righteousness. This is the realization that God is my righteousness because of Christ. On our behalf, he's our righteousness. We have the shoes of readiness, which describes the peace that comes from finding out finally what our life is all about and then loving sharing it with others. Having the shield of faith deals with our focus and what we look to from which to draw life that keeps us from suddenly being tricked by the fiery darts of temptation. And having the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit are the word of God and our new personal history. So Paul says, put on this armor. 
Put it on. Take what is objectively yours and make it yours subjectively. Believe it. Put it on, Christian, in such a way that it rules and controls our life. Put it on. And know there's no reason to be scared or to fear the enemy. And the way we put it on is really pretty simple. We confess. We confess. We confess that we're weak and we confess our new nature and our new identity. That's so counterintuitive. It's the gospel and it's counterintuitiveness here. We like strong. And God tells us to confess that we're weak and that in our weakness, he is strong. We're to boast in weakness, not strength. Ronda Rousey made headlines this past week again, if you know who Ronda Rousey is. She was the MMA world champion in ultimate fighting. Uh, She was destroying her opponents. Everyone was obsessed with Ronda Rousey. People who didn't even know ultimate fighting knew who Ronda Rousey was. She was strong. She was invincible until her last fight when she got knocked out. (laughs) And if you saw it, she got destroyed. She lost. And then this past week, she interviewed on Ellen, and Ronda Rousey confessed in tears that when she got knocked out, she had thoughts of committing suicide. She had thoughts that no one would like her anymore. She no longer had purpose because she lost and was no longer invincible. And there was a group on Mike and Mike, an ESPN talk show in the mornings discussing Ronda Rousey's confession. And some thought it was weak. She shouldn't have confessed. She shouldn't have done it. Others said it actually took more strength for her to confess her weakness than the strength she showed before when she was destroying her opponents. See, confession of weakness is how we begin. It's how we must fight and stand as Christians. We confess. We confess our sin. We confess our ways of wondering. We confess our heart's desires are not always God's desires, but here's where we're different, Christian, than Ronda Rousey. Rousey confessed in tears that her whole identity was shattered. She was no longer invincible. No longer would she be liked and wanted. So we, the church, confess our weakness. We confess our defeats. And then we have an identity that cannot be shattered, that cannot be shaken. We are in Christ. We must recall and remember and trust again in all that Christ has secured for us. The armor of God, we must put it on. And this leads me to my last point, why we will win. Why we will win. Paul writes in verse 10, finally be strong in the Lord, in the strength of his might. See church, it's okay to like strong, but our strong is never in ourselves. Our strong is in the Lord. We are in Christ. And Christ appeared weak, and he was mocked, and he was rejected, and was crucified, and through that he crushed the head of the serpent. Through the cross and through the resurrection, he crushed the head of our enemy. And Paul tells us that the same power that resurrected Christ from the grave lives within us. 
Do you realize that? Do you believe that? That the, the same power that resurrected Christ lives within each of you? Amen. We're not self-strong. We're resurrection strong. Amen. We're Jesus strong. And the power that God provides is not internal energy. See, God doesn't dispense kind of spiritual pills or kind of a Sunday morning pep-up pill to you to supplement your strength and my strength. He is our strength. He's our strength. One of my favorite movies of all times is Braveheart. And I know the image you hear in Ephesians 6 is that of a first century Roman soldier, but I tend to imagine the battlefield like in Braveheart. I just go there. So here the church stands, looking out into our world, the battlefield. We look through the helmet of salvation that God has given to us. And coming towards us, we see the assaulting forces of the evil one with all of his dominions and powers. And seeing the approaching darkness, perhaps we begin to fear that we can't stand. And the ground shakes, and our knees begin to buckle. And the Apostle Paul, like a general, calls out to us, steady, hold, take your stand, be strong in the Lord. Forget the strength you thought you could provide. Be strong in the Lord. Always remember the power of the armor of God that's been given to you, resurrection power has given you a breastplate of righteousness, a shield of faith, feet shod with readiness, and beyond all your defenses, use your offensive weapon of the word of God and be confident and stand and fight. So why don't we stand, church? Why do we often fall? I think Paul is telling us because we fail to lay hold of what is already ours in Christ. We either become cocksure in ourselves and think we're strong and we forget we're in a battle or we stop running to our strength, the Lord Jesus. And this is why Paul ends with one huge exhortation and it's our major application. Pray. Pray. Verse 18 is the single most comprehensive verse in the Bible on prayer. Look at it, pray at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication, with all perseverance for all the saints. Pray at all times. Prayer is a lifestyle. It's not something you clock in and clock out of. Prayer is companionship and it's dialogue with our God. Pray in the spirit. Pray with, as our pastor says, with the alertness of mind. This is Romans 8. The spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't always know what to pray for, do we, in, in certain situations? You ever been in a situation where you're like, oh, is it, should I pray this way? Should I pray, what's, what's better? I don't know what, which way to pray, what's right? Well, the Spirit leads us in our weakness with his wisdom and with his power. And in all prayer with supplication. How many of you were taught I was taught this at an early age. Maybe you were taught this acronym, ACTS. We've used that in our church. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication, acts. I think that's a good model to, to teach us how to pray. To adore God, to confess, to thank him, and then in supplication, presenting our request to him. With all perseverance, with all perseverance, 
Yet prayer is often the first thing that we let go of. Prayer is often the thing we think we can come back to. And Paul's saying persevere, pray, fight to pray. Do we really believe the hymn that we sing here on Sunday mornings? I need thee every hour. Every hour I need. Do Do you feel your need for him? Then we'd pray and pray for all the saints. We need to pray for Christians in Durham, churches in Durham, Christians and churches around the world. And then Paul ends by saying, pray for me as I boldly proclaim the gospel. And I will humbly and boldly say, pray for me, church. Pray for Timothy. Pray for our staff. We need your prayers. I love how Charles Spurgeon, one of the greatest pastor preachers in the 19th century responded when he he was asked, what's the secret of your ministry? What's the secret? And he said, my people pray for me. Would you pray for us? Church, the Lord Jesus is building his church on territory occupied by an enemy. You better believe we live in a war zone. And thank God that Jesus declared in Matthew 16, 18, that I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Christ is the victor. He has crushed the head of the enemy. The war is Done. The victory is sure. Though the war is secure, there are battles that will still pop up and that we still will face until Christ returns and vanquishes the enemy completely. So let's not be foolish and think we're not in the middle of a battle. And let's not be deceived in thinking that the devil does not exist and let's not be overly focused on the evil one. But let's be strong and stand and fight in the Lord, in Christ, and let's pray. Let's pray now. Lord God, I ask that you would help us to see that we really are in a battle, but it's in Christ alone that we stand. He is our confidence and our security, the one who is triumphantly leading us, your people. So would you protect us Would we seek refuge in in you? And would you use us to advance your church in this world, to declare unto the world this great secret that was hidden for ages past but now has been revealed, that Christ has come to renew all things, to make all that is sad untrue, all that is broken redeemed. So Lord, would we trust that and trust you in Jesus' name, amen.